She is truly a remarkable Texan. Howdy! You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. She was the wife of a former governor, publisher of the Houston Post, a noted philanthropist, proudly served her country in World War II, and was the second woman to ever hold a cabinet position in the United States. This week, we look at the fascinating life of Oveta Culp Hobby. But first, what's your favorite Texas geological feature? Well, I would say the Texas City Dyke, but that's man-made. So I'm going to go with what uh, I guess everybody knows as Baldy at Garner State Park. It's the the big hill right by the Rio Frio in the middle of the park. And um, it's kind of like our own Texan El Capitan in a way. Well, I was going to say everything, like the entire of Texas, because it's, (laughs) it's one beautiful geologic feature. But uh, personally, I really love the uh, the barrier islands of Texas, uh, Mustang and uh, Padre and all the islands down there, not only because they provide shelter to the residents of the Texas coast, and uh, also they provide, uh, a, they're teeming with wildlife, and they're quite elegant and beautiful. And they, in fact, they're one of the mainstays of refuge for America's crane uh, population, a lot, of, a lot of wild birds and things that nest down there. Like uh, raving spring breakers. And the raving spring breakers, yes. So I will see you guys this spring break on Padre Island. <laughs> Kegger on the beach. Well, my favorite uh, geologic feature, I have not ever seen Capelador Canyon. So I'm going to have to go with a little further south, the beginning of the Caprock Escarpment, which is a, uh, a raised area that marks a huge plateau in western Texas. I love it because it re- represents for me uh, when I was a kid, we'd be going out to West Texas to see my grandmother. It represented only another two more hours of driving <laughs> after the five we'd already spent on I-20. Mm. Uh, so it was, we're almost there. Yep. Yeah. It's that scene from Alien where the lady goes, kill me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Three times a year. Wow. <laughs> uh, stewing in your own juice back there in the... The vinyl yeah, seat, the jump seat of the suburban. Oh, yeah, no, backseat of the back seat of the suburban. Yeah. I had a stack of books three feet high. Uh-huh. Oveta Culp was born in 1905 in the central Texas town of Killeen to Isaac and Emma Culp. Her father was a lawyer and later served as a state legislator. She grew up in Killeen attending public schools, though she largely taught herself to read at a very young age. She was a bright and precocious girl whose parents, especially her mother, taught her the importance of community service. Throughout her childhood, the family gave food, money, and clothing to the poor in the area, and her mother exposed her to the conditions of poverty, refusing to allow Oveta to live a sheltered life. From her father, Oveta inherited a serious, inquisitive nature and a love for logic, knowledge, the law, rhetoric, and politics. She stopped at her father's office every day after school and listened to him discuss his cases while she read his law and government books. When she was 10, she read the Congressional Record, and by the time she was a teenager, she'd read the Bible three times. At age 14, she went with her father to Austin when he was elected to the state legislature. She spent most of her days skipping school so she could observe the sessions from the balcony gallery. Despite missing so much school, she graduated from high school at the top of her class. She even found time to organize a group of teenage musicians and orators 
who toured the area raising money for church organs. Ovetta went to the women's college at Mary Harden Baylor, located nearby in Belton. She never graduated, but was typically active. She taught elocution and debate, put on plays, and was a cub reporter for the Austin Statesman. Avetta had a personal library of over 700 books, ranging from poetry to law to memoirs. When she was 20, she was asked to serve as the legislative parliamentarian for the Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives. This meant she was considered the primary authority on all matters of parliamentary procedure. Ovetta held this position for seven years, during which time she also took law classes at the University of Texas, clerked for the Banking Commission, and the Legislature's Judiciary Committee. She was involved in Democratic Party politics and even served as Assistant City Attorney of Houston, despite not having a law degree. Ovetta only ran for office one time, an attempted run for the House representing Houston, but she was humiliated by the experience and the dirty politics involved. More importantly, though, during this time was the relationship she developed with William P. Hobby, the former governor of Texas and a friend of her father's. Hobby was a progressive newspaperman who served as governor from 1917 to 1921 and had moved to Houston to run the Post-Dispatch newspaper for his friend Ross Sterling in 1924. Ovetta was serving as assistant city attorney in Houston when they renewed their acquaintance, and within a year the two were married. She was 26 and Javi was 53, but she was happy with the match. She later said, quote, nothing in my life would be possible without governor. Well, that's an awkward pet name. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. Well, after marrying, Ovetta threw herself into family life and business. Her first son, Bill Jr., was born in 1932, and he'd be followed by a daughter, Jessica. Ovetta resigned from her post as legislative parliamentarian and she undertook to learn the newspaper business from her husband. Initially, she was a freelance writer and assistant editor. Over the years, she advanced, though, to vice president, then to assistant publisher, and finally publisher. In 1939, the Hobbies bought the Post from Sterling, and over time, they'd add other newspapers as well as a radio station and other businesses. She even worked through her recovery from a riding accident, a horse riding accident, that broke her leg and arm. A book she wrote during this time on parliamentary procedure later became a standard textbook in the Texas public school system. In 1936, the Hobbies were involved in a plane crash when they were flying back from Dallas. Ovetta pulled her unconscious husband out of the burning plane and then helped rescue workers treat the badly burned pilot, even riding with them in the ambulance back to Dallas. Doctors at the emergency room assumed she was a nurse or hospital attendant and didn't realize she'd actually been in the crash. When this fact was finally discovered, they hospitalized Ovetta just to make sure she was okay. She also continued her philanthropy and community service. She chaired the League of Women Voters of Texas and was also a major patron of the arts in Houston. More importantly, as the effects of the Depression wore on, she became a major contributor to charitable relief events. In 1935, the Buffalo Bayou flooded downtown Houston, and a citizens' committee was appointed to plan a flood control program. Ovetta was the only woman on the committee, and I like to think if she were alive today, she would be a patron of a podcast about Texas history. <laughs> In the summer of 1941, Ovetta was asked to assist with organizing a commission to study and determine how women could serve their country in the military. The country was getting closer and closer to having to enter the conflict gripping most of the world, and the military was rapidly expanding. 
thousands of young women were writing letters to the War Department asking how they too could serve. General David Searles asked Ovetta for her help on the problem, but she declined, citing her family and business commitments. Searles pressed her, though, and Governor Hobby convinced her that she needed to do whatever the country asked of her. She accepted and was named head of the Women's Interest Section of the War Department Public Relations Bureau from 1941 to 1942. Initially, Mrs. Hobby's primary task was planning. Previously, only nurses had ever served officially in the Army. She studied the experiences of the British and French Army's use of women in order to avoid mistakes that they had made. She was also tasked with telling the public facts about the Army in terms that were interesting to women. As she put it, For every one of the 1,500,000 men in the Army today, there are four or five women, mothers, wives, sisters, sweethearts, who are closely and personally interested. Mothers are more interested in their son's health than they are in Army maneuvers. They want to know what their man or boy is doing in his recreational hours, what opportunities the men have for training and promotion, about the health of camps and the provisions made for religious life. After Pearl Harbor, her role changed. She was asked to determine what women could do in order to free up non-combat troops for combat roles. She put together training plans for women who would be going into the Army. Oveta was called to testify before Congress about what the plans were for a woman's army. Finally, she was asked to put together a list of women who could command the Army for Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall. General Marshall took one look at the list, put it down, and told her he'd rather her take the job. She refused, but once again, her husband, Governor Hobby, told her that she should take the job. She became the first director of what was the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in May of 1942. Yeah, Mrs. Hobby immediately set out to crisscross the country, speaking about the need to enlist women's volunteers, directing the initial training programs, and overcoming the challenges that confronted the Corps. Those challenges ranged from confusion about their role and what they did to outright obstruction from those elements opposed to women having any part in the military. There was even an ugly slander campaign on the home front that accused the WAAC girls of being sexually immoral. It often took her indomitable will and the direct orders she had from the chief of staff and the Roosevelt cabinet to overcome these obstacles. The WAAC soon proved itself, and on July 1, 1943, Congress converted it to full army status as the Women's Army Corps. Oveta Culp Hobby was the first woman soldier sworn into the WAC with the rank of colonel. By the end of World War II, 150,000 women from all races and walks of life volunteered for service. They freed up the equivalent of seven full divisions of men for combat. Another 50,000 women served in similar programs in the Navy, Air Force, and Marines. Initially, the WAC was authorized to fill 54 Army jobs. By the end of the war, they were doing 239 types of job, and Hobby's command had requests from commanding officers all over the world for over 600,000 women to fill positions of need. General Douglas MacArthur called the WACs his, quote, best soldiers as they worked harder, complained less, and had better discipline than his own men. General Dwight Eisenhower said, their contribution to the efficiency, skill, spirit, and determination are immeasurable. Much of this credit is due to the incredible organizational skills and work ethic of Colonel Hobby. She worked harder than anyone she commanded, often only taking the time between working days to shower. She was rarely home to see her family during this time, and her hair quickly turned gray. 
By July 1945, with the war nearly over, she was exhausted and requested permission to resign. Once granted permission to do so, Governor Hobby took her on a stretcher by train to a hospital in New York City to recover. Among the many honors that Oveta received was the Distinguished Service Medal, the highest non-combat award that can be granted in the United States Army. The citation stated, quote, Without guidance or precedence in the United States military history to assist her, Colonel Hobby established sound policies and planned and supervised the selection and training of officers and regulations. Her contribution to the war effort of the nation has been of important significance. She returned to Houston to a hero's welcome and with a changed mind about the world around her. She resumed her career at The Post and as director of the family's radio station. They added Houston's first TV station, KPRC Channel 2, in 1950. She also continued her philanthropy both in the community and as a national figure. More controversially, she quickly made her position clear about her support for equal opportunities for all people. As co-chairman of Houston's Armed Forces Day, she demanded that the celebration be made open to anyone who of any race had served in the armed forces. Later, the Hobbies provided a platform in the Post that supported and helped tip consensus in Houston in favor of desegregation. These positions weren't always popular, but people respected both the stately former governor and his steely-willed wife. In 1952, Mrs. Hobby was a key figure in the National Democrats for Eisenhower movement and was heavily involved in the campaign to get Ike elected president. Before 1952, Texas electors had only voted for a Republican candidate once, for Herbert Hoover, since the Reconstruction. Though Texas remained a Democrat state in the Senate, House, and in state politics, its people voted overwhelmingly for Eisenhower. After he entered office, the new president appointed Mrs. Hobby as chairman to the Federal Security Agency. This was a non-cabinet position, but he also asked her to sit in on cabinet meetings. In April 1953, Eisenhower named Hobby the first secretary of the new cabinet position for the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. This time, she was tasked with organizing an entirely new branch of the federal government. Today, this department is the Department of Health and Human Services. Aveto was the second woman cabinet member ever appointed, the first for a Republican president. Secretary Hobby took to her new job with her customary drive and discipline. Her office was now responsible for six major programs, Social Security, the Office of Education, the Public Health Service, the Food and Drug Administration, the Office of Vocational Rehabilitation, and St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a federally run mental health facility in Washington, D.C., it was also responsible for the administration of Howard University, the Printing House for the Blind, and Gallaudet College for the Deaf. She was responsible for everything, from old-age pensions to land-grant college funds, ensuring that food was safe, cancer research, schools for the blind and deaf, mental institutions, and nearly everything in between. During her first year, an article in a New York newspaper stated, quote, when she learns her job, Oveta Hobby may trim her week to 70 hours. While Secretary Hobby was in her position, she oversaw a $180 million hospital expansion and a $150 million building program for other medical and nursing facilities. In response to the first waves of baby boom children going to schools, she proposed and oversaw a $7 million combined federal, state, and local program to expand public education. And Mike and I have seen many of those schools built during the Eisenhower administration. Her office improved food and drug laws, expanded funding for treatment of mental health, 
for nursing and rehabilitation programs, and it enacted improvement in insurance programs. Perhaps her greatest contribution, though, was enacting a program which approved and distributed Dr. Jonas Salk's polio vaccination to the American public. This program eventually eradicated the dreaded disease from American life. As during the war, however, the job wore Mrs. Hobby down. After 31 months, she was done. Governor Hobby, now in his 70s, was ill, and Ovetta wanted to return home. She resigned in July of 1955. President Eisenhower sadly told her before an assembled press conference, quote, None of us will forget your wise counsel, your calm confidence in the face of every kind of difficulty, your concern for people everywhere, the warm heart you brought to your job, as well as your talents. She left her position to almost universal acclaim. Secretary of the Treasury George Humphrey even referred to her as, quote, the best man in the cabinet. Mrs. Hobby returned to her beloved Houston and again took up the post of president and editor of the Houston Post. In 1956, she became a director of the Bank of Texas and the first woman trustee of Mutual of New York's board. She also received honorary degrees from practically every school in the country, including Mary Hardin Baylor and the University of Texas, both of which she'd attended but never actually graduated. Until Governor Hobby's death, though, she rarely left home for more than a few hours. After he died in 1964, she continued to serve on boards and commissions. Notably, President Lyndon Johnson appointed her to the National Advisory Commission on Selective Service, and she actually flew to Vietnam in 1966 to meet with draftees serving there. In 1968, she served on the board of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. One of her most cherished honors was the naming of the library at Central Texas College in Colleen, with President Johnson presiding over the dedication. Her son, Bill Jr., served as Lieutenant Governor of Texas from 1973 to 1991. He got elected a lot. I remember him quite a bit. Uh, Her daughter, Jessica, was married to Henry Cato, a former United States ambassador. Mrs. Hobby died in 1995 at the age of 90, and she was buried in Glenwood Cemetery in Houston next to her beloved governor. That is one tough Texas lady. She is truly a remarkable Texan. Yes. So we talked about Ann Richards a couple of weeks ago. And I have to say, she's got nothing on Ovetta called Hobby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, Hobby, Mrs. Hobby, she she did a lot, and a lot of really, really good stuff. Well, it's just it's crazy to think about like what an influence she was. Uh, you know, just any one of these like eleven things she did would be yeah, <laughs> a, yeah. would Pick be one. a lifetime career maker for somebody. But I mean. Probably the thing that stands out to me most is just that that early work she did for the for the army, you know, and what that critical, you know, you can't look and see the idea of of what the the women's corps was, and you see like the idea of the the Rosie the Riveter, and there's this time in America where we look at just what that what that did to fire the the idea of the women's movement in in America. And uh, and she was the root of it, and she's Texan, so we can be proud of that. And even within the army, I mean, they there was opposition to what what Marshall and her proposed, and Congress, you know, listened, and so they initially voted 150,000 uh, troops, women troops, but then they limited it to just a few thousand initially because the army opposed it. But by the end of the war, 
the army was asking for more women than the Congress had granted authority to recruit. I mean, they were asking, they, were, they, need, they wanted 600,000 jobs. And, you know, think about it, seven divisions of men, that's, that's a lot of men that were able to be, you know, in combat uh, that didn't have to be home digging ditches or, or, or typing, typing letters or uh, answering phones or any of that, that sort of thing that women were able to do. So it's a, it's a remarkable accomplishment. And it, it, it really did start from scratch. And then she did it again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and then the work, I mean, it wasn't just like, I'm going to put you on a cabinet position that is a, you know, this wasn't some kind of token grant of, well, job well done. So here's kind of a, you know, celebratory kind of a ceremonial position. No, this was um, social security and the well-being and education of our nation and all of these other things. And, uh, and we'll throw in a middle hospital or fun. Figure all that out. That's your that's your new day yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and talk about naming schools after a famous Texan. There should be more schools named after oh, yeah. a better hobby. Yeah, there's there's quite a few. There, it's not as popular now as it once was, but but yeah. But I, I and go back to her early life. I mean, at twenty, she's she's hired to be the chief parliamentarian of the Texas legislature. Point of order, Mister Chairman, Mister Speaker. Yeah. I mean, even before that, I mean, her, her entire, entire childhood, yeah. she was brought up in a mm-hmm. life of service. Yeah. So it's it's pretty remarkable, uh, pretty remarkable life. Yeah. And, and she stayed in politics, but was very badly burned by that first, that one attempt at being elected. Well, and it and it seems that she was able to accomplish yeah. plenty. Yeah. Right. You know, it's not like she needed to hold political office to uh, get things done. In fact, it might have been a hindrance because it's a lot harder to resign from elected office in many cases than it is from. Probably a good thing she wasn't killed in that plane crash. Like what yet another miraculous thing she she happened to walk (laughs) away from. Yeah. And I I mean, she was obviously destined to go on to greater things after that. So, yeah, she's. She's a pretty great lady. I, I, she's a great Texan. She's, she's a, one of the great Texans. So I guess this, this would be the question is, is that, um, why isn't she lauded more in this modern era? Because there's nothing you can point to in her life and go, you know, well, yeah, she did that. But remember that one time there's none of that in, yeah. in her story. Like no. she just, it's a life of, of service uh, in and putting others first. So why do you think? So the big question for me of this episode is: is why is she not one of the principal people that we really hammer home to kids after 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 Jim Bowie and and Travis? <laughs> well, I, I think it's unfortunately it's a it's a fact of you know, a bias against the contributions of women. I mean, it's, it's a pervasive thing in history and it, you know, kind of makes me sad. Yeah. Part of it is also that the name hobby looms pretty, pretty large in Houston and it says much for the governor as for her. I mean, they jointly were such big figures in Houston for pretty much the middle part of the century or the first half of the century, really. So, you know, you see hobby, hobby field or hobby hobby airport in in downtown houston but is that it's generally named after william hobby um so i don't know i I think some of it is that even though she's a very large figure her husband probably cast a bit more of a shadow um but it's also that she never was an elected official so 
people don't quite remember, uh, you know, appointees or public servants, they, they tend to remember elected officials as well. I'm sorry, I'm glad we're doing our part to yeah. help change that because I think more people need to hear this story. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, any any woman that worked every literally every hour of the day for four four straight years is you know, gotta be gotta be someone to be appreciated. Well, there you go. When somebody asks you uh, to name some awesome tough Texas ladies, Oveda Culpabi. Or just Tough Texas. Just to, I mean, take you the know lady what? out Good of it. Point. I mean, that's a remarkable contribution regardless. Uh, my bad. Gender. My bad. You're absolutely right. I, I know plenty of men that would not have worked no. as hard as she did or accomplished no, as much she was, as she did. She's incredible. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We need to hear from you, so get out there. Like and share the show on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. And get yourself to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And if you'd like to support our show financially, get yourself to patreon.com slash texaspodcast. Become a patron of the show and help support us. If you want to follow us individually, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We know you like the show. We know you like Texas, so get out there and do your duty. Tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that helps us to get noticed by listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.